Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn J-Town in Louisville, Kentucky. Thanks, Josh. It's uh, great to be back with you all. You know, I'm sure many of you are familiar, most of you probably are familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series, this great series of seven children's books where you have the four Pevensey children, uh, Lucy and Edmund and Susan and Peter, who are magically transported uh, through this wardrobe into this horrible place, at least initially of Narnia, where it's always Christmas, but, or always winter, but never Christmas. Always Christmas, and never winter. That wouldn't be bad either. But always winter and never Christmas. <clears throat> And then you probably know the story in that first book where Aslan comes and through his own self-sacrifice in a Christ-like way, uh, breaks the curse of that land and brings healing. Now, that's, and it goes all the way through seven books, and you're probably familiar with that. But I don't know if you are, have ever been aware that there's, there are a number of subplots kind of in that story. And one of them has to do with Queen Susan, High Queen Susan, the older of the two sisters. And and High Queen Susan, the gentle, she uh, plays a role in the first book and a number of the other books. But by the time you get to the seventh book, she's conspicuously absent, actually. And there are actually comments by a number of different characters who note that in the seventh book, when the uh, all the children are on a train, I hope I don't spoil this for you, but they're on a train and there's an accident and they end up being transported to the real Narnia, then Susan's not with them. And several of the characters note this. And they acknowledge that she's no longer a friend of Narnia, they say. And one of the characters notes that she instead now is interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. So now Susan is 21, and she looks down on the childishness of this belief in this other world that the children have all experienced, including her, that she'd experienced together. And so it's an interesting sort of part of the story that's there. And the question is, what's good old wise C.S. Lewis trying to tell us about that? Well, we know that he doesn't write her off completely. In fact, some years later, he was in correspondence. He used to get a lot of letters from children and others. And he, he kept on a pretty heavy correspondence with a number of people. And we've, there, several of those have been collected and published. And he wrote to one fan. He wrote back and told this fan The books don't tell us what happened to Susan. She's left alive in this world at the end, having by then turned into a rather silly, conceited young woman. But there's plenty of time for her to mend, and perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end. So he doesn't write her off by any means, but it's kind of an open question. Now, you see, what Lewis Lewis is saying here with Susan's character is something I think that is profoundly true about human nature, and I think Lewis got it from Jesus, particularly a text like Luke 18, uh, verse 17, where it says, where Jesus says that unless you become like a child, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, what Lewis understood is that even though we rightly grow up and become not childish anymore, there's something that we shouldn't lose when we grow up and mature And that is a kind of a a childlike wonder and trust and faith and understanding of God in the world. And while Susan appears to mature and get beyond those things, she's actually cutting herself off from life. Now, what does that have to do uh, with you and me? 
Well, today we are continuing our story, as uh, Josh said, in of meals with Jesus and Luke. And we come to a, a, another children's story. We're familiar with Chronicles and Arnie, and we're actually quite familiar with the children's story that is in our meal with Jesus here in Luke chapter 19. <clears throat> and it's the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the wee little man was he. And you can't even say his name without breaking into this little ditty that if you grew up in Sunday school at all, you know, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. I wish I would have copyrighted that. I could have made millions, right? Because it's so catchy, so familiar. And this is a children's story that we do know, but I think even as with Narnia, that you realize that it's more than a children's story. I think we'll see that in Luke 19 today, there's something very profound, something very profound about who God is and about who we are that comes from this story in Luke 19. So I just want to pause and pray that God would attend to us and draw near to us as we uh, turn to his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, even as we just sang, you alone can heal. You alone are worthy. You alone can uh, heal wounds and set things straight in our hearts and lives. So we give this time to you. This is a time where we open ourselves and ask that your spirit would give me words to say and all of us hearts to hear. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, every story in the Gospels is important or else they wouldn't be there. But some stories have a lot of weight. And we're, we've been seeing in this series of meals with Jesus that these meal stories turn out, and I, I'm a gospels teacher, that's what I do all the time, but this series has taught me a lot about how important these meals with Jesus are in Luke in particular, because it's at these meals, which are big social events. They're not just a, a small taking in calories thing, but they're big social events. It's at these meals all throughout uh, the gospels that Jesus causes a lot of trouble. It's often in these meals that he makes big issues out of things that are important to him and to the Father. And our story in Luke 19 is no exception. And in fact, in some ways, this story in Luke 19 is particularly important because of where it's set in the overall story that Luke is telling. So Luke's written this long biography of Jesus, and it's got three major parts to it. The first part has the kind of introduction about Jesus' birth, those stories we read at Christmas, introductory things about his uh, early ministry. But then something happens in chapter 9 that's very, very important. In chapter 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's really, really important because what's in Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem is going to be the last week of Jesus' life where everything comes together, all his teaching, his whole purpose of dying and suffering on behalf of us people and then dying on the cross and raising, rising from the, the grave and establishing a new covenant. All these things happen in that last week, just one week in Jerusalem. And so this time from Luke 9.51 all the way through Luke 19.28 is this large section where Luke tells us all kinds of stories while Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem. And there's this constant sense through the book that he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That means that the stories that happen right at the end of that section are pretty important. The final things that happen before he gets to Jerusalem. And that's in fact what we have in Luke 18 and then our story in Luke 19. In fact, Luke 19, the story of Zacchaeus is actually the last 
personal encounter Jesus will have with anyone before he gets to that last week of his life in the triumphal entry at the end of chapter 19. And that says we should probably pay attention because Luke has crafted together his story so that we'll pay attention to why the stories are where they are and what he chooses to emphasize. And you notice if you look at chapter 18, there are a lot of, right up before our story, there are a lot of interesting stories there. You've got that, the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who both go to pray. Do you remember this in chapter 18? And the tax collector is so humble, he won't even lift his head up to God. But the Pharisee stands there so proud and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that sinner over there. And Jesus says the radical thing, which of these two people, the obvious sinner or the obviously godly person, the Pharisee, which of these two is justified? Lo and behold, it's actually the tax collector. And then you have the story also of this, another very godly, wealthy person, a rich young Jewish ruler who comes to Jesus and again goes away empty-handed, goes away unjustified, goes away without a relationship with God because Jesus goes for it and knows what's in his heart and challenges him to give up everything to follow him and he's not able to do that. And then right before our story, you have another story, which is the, on the road to Jericho, a blind beggar cries out to Jesus. The crowds try to stop him to get to him, but he cries out and Jesus stops and heals him and restores him. And that leads us right up to this famous story of Zacchaeus. And I want us to look and see what it says. And we, if you have a Bible, you can look there or else we'll just put the words on the screen as well. So look what it says there in chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, he climbed up a sycamore fig tree to see him, and since Jesus was coming that way. So here we are. Jericho is this important trade city right on the banks of the Jordan River. You cross over, it's just 12 miles from there into Jerusalem. We're heading towards Jerusalem. This is the last stop before Jesus gets to Jerusalem and we meet this man. Now to understand what's going on here, we need to understand why it talks about him being a tax collector. Because you see, at this time, Judea was completely run by the Roman government, the Roman Empire, we should say, with a very heavy hand and a very heavy boot. And the Roman Empire was incredibly successful, incredibly wealthy, such that they, you know, they were, if you look at a map of the Roman Empire in the first century, it was over the entire Mediterranean area, all the way up to, all the way through England. You know, they built Hadrian's Wall. That was already built at this time. So a massively wealthy empire. And how they were so wealthy is because they heavily taxed every, every group that they took over and every land that they conquered. Not just like an income tax, like we might feel irksome about, but taxes on everything, toll roads, customs, a portion of every, everything you earn, a portion of everything you trade, everything was heavily taxed. And they also had this brilliant idea Instead of them just managing the taxation system themselves, they would auction off the taxation system to local people who would have to pay the Romans a portion of it, but then they could charge whatever they wanted and make as much money as they wanted. It's not, we do something kind of similar today. I don't know if you know, if you're in debt, there comes a point where actually agencies buy debt from other companies at pennies on the dollar knowing that it's an investment that they can actually, whatever they get out of you that you might owe, they'll, they get as profit. 
It's not entirely dissimilar to this system. It was a very smart thing for the Romans to do because they realized instead of them having to manage this all, they could just hire local people who were greedy and would take advantage of it and they could make as much money as they wanted. They'd be happy and the Romans would get their guaranteed amount as well. Well, Jericho was a good place to do this because Jericho was one of the main trade routes and it was a very prosperous city and area. And so there was a lot of money to be made. And that's when this man Zacchaeus, who we might call Z-Man or Z-Money, might even call him, because he is a very successful tax collector. He's a wealthy tax collector. In fact, it even says he is a chief tax collector, which means he not only, probably, from what we can tell, he not only collected taxes himself, he probably was like, as one pastor has called it, the kingpin of the tax cartel of Jericho, right? I mean, he's got people underneath him. He's probably making tons of money off this. It's a, he's a very wealthy chief tax collector. And to imagine what this would be like, I mean, imagine if North Korea or Iran took over our country and taxed us very, very heavily, much more than we're being taxed now, and used all that money to build mosques and shrines to their leaders, etc., while we're oppressed and very starving. And who's the one who's in charge of those tax collecting? It's somebody sitting next to you, one of your fellow Americans who is a total sellout. This is the kind of person Zacchaeus was. He's the kind of man, he's a Jewish man who is making a ton of money off everybody else being mostly poor in the very act of selling out his countrymen for the Roman government. He is hated. He would be like Saul Goodman and Gus Fring and Tuco Salamanca all put together, if you know who those people are, and if you don't, that's probably just as well. Or like a real person, Martin Trichelli, this guy you may have heard of, he's been in the news recently, a pharmaceuticals hedge fund manager who bought all the rights to this drug that AIDS people need and some cancer uh, people need as well to stay alive. He bought it and then overnight turned the price from $13.50 a pill to $750 a pill because he had all the rights and he could do whatever he wanted and people wanted it. That outrage that we feel plus the idea of being sold out by your own countrymen, that's exactly the kind of guy Zacchaeus was and exactly how you and I would feel about him as his fellow Jews did as well. But we see in verse 3 that this guy wanted to see Jesus. He wanted to see who Jesus was. We don't know why exactly. We don't know how much he knew about Jesus. At this point in Luke, Jesus has done a lot of stuff, a lot of healings, a lot of miracles. And he's certainly heard about this enough to be interested. And he's also, Jesus is known for one thing particular in, in Luke. And that is that he is friendly to and friends with and loves sinners, people like the prostitute of chapter 7, if you were here a couple weeks ago, and tax collectors, which again for us doesn't sound like that's kind of a weird combination of people, but you need to understand tax collectors are the worst. And yet Jesus is known to be a friend of them. In fact, back in chapter 5, Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is walking by a road. He sees a tax collector named Levi sitting in his toll booth and says, come follow me. He leaves everything, follows him, and goes and dines in his house. And that person became Matthew, the author of the first gospel. 
Maybe Zacchaeus had heard these stories about tax collectors. But we don't know exactly what he knew. We don't know exactly what he was feeling. But it's not difficult to imagine that at some point, some dark night, he had begun to realize that all this wealth he had didn't really satisfy. And at some moment, it must have begun to dawn on him that he was deeply desperate and wounded and broken and not loved. And I think it's fair to assume something like that happened because otherwise he would not have sought out Jesus and been curious to see who he was. He probably was afflicted with what has been called the severe grace of dissatisfaction. Or as what St. Augustine called that restlessness that is in us until we find our rest in God. We do know that he was serious about seeking Jesus because that's what we see he did. And, And the other thing that we know about him is that he was to speak Scottish for a minute, a wee little man. That's the only, the only time we sort of use that. He was a wee little man. When I was growing up, he would have been called a shrimp. Um, today, vertically challenged or whatever else we might want to call it. <clears throat> but he, we know he's a man of short stature, which could have, would probably meant not only a reference to his actual height, but probably to his character as well. There was probably a way that, of course, they hated him and he was looked down upon by all the other Jews because of his, his corrupt occupation. We know that the crowds probably weren't very keen on helping him. So he's trying to get in. He can't even see who Jesus is. So he runs ahead of the crowd, climbs up in this sycamore tree, and is there waiting. And then look what happens at verse 5. Jesus is walking along with this huge entourage, heading toward Jerusalem, people touching him and trying to hear him and be near him. In verse 5, it says, When Jesus reached this very spot where he had been up in this tree, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, whether Zacchaeus wanted to be sort of hiding in that tree and just kind of see, or whether he didn't care at all, I'm inclined to think it's more the latter. Either way, his cover was blown. Because of all the people Jesus could have stopped and talked to, Of all the crowd around him, he stops right at that spot, looks up to the guy sitting in the tree. You can imagine the whole crowd looks up as well. Many probably laughed and scorned. And you see this guy, this grown man in robes, it's an awkward situation, sitting up in this tree, right? I mean, the whole thing is weird. And Jesus highlights this situation and doesn't just say, get down out of there. This is embarrassing or something. Quite the opposite. He calls him by name and says, I'm going to your house today. And Zacchaeus is overjoyed. And so he gets down from the tree and sure enough, invites him into this meal, into this great dinner party at his house, which would have involved a long night and and staying at their house as his guest as well. And notice that what a contrast this is to the other meals we've been seeing in Luke. Usually in a Pharisee's house, Usually, with a lot of conflict, this is a joyful feast. And in fact, this time, the conflict is outside. And did you see it in verse 7? There's still people that are mad about this, but this time, they're on the outside. All the people muttered and said, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. So imagine Jesus comes in, and of all of us, 
he chooses the one person who's the sellout to the Iranian government and says, I'm going to dine with you. This is how people were upset. And of course, this is not the only time that people have grumbled at Jesus. They've been grumbling him when he called Levi. They grumbled to him in chapter 7 when he uh, heals this prostitute woman in, in the dinner party. They grumbled at him in chapter 15. They're not happy with this. This is shocking. And then look what happens at the end of the story. <clears throat> Verse 8. In the midst of this meal, this long evening of dining together, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son or child of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We don't know at what point. I mean, this is like a compressed story. We know these meals went on for hours and hours. Zacchaeus is there listening, I'm sure, paying attention to Jesus, maybe asking him some questions, maybe kind of just observing Jesus interact with people. Jesus is probably teaching about the kingdom and and about who he is and all this. And Zacchaeus is, is watching this. And at some point, the lightning bolt strikes, and he just has to stand up in the middle of the feast and say, look, right now, I'm giving away half of what I own. Think what's in your bank account right now. Half of that, you're going to give away. Maybe it's a negative amount. I understand that, right? That's an easy giving. But think about half your possessions, gone. You're just going to give them away. And then if, you've, if he's defrauded anybody, which he has, a lot of people, four times as much he's going to pay back, right? And, and one of the interesting things about this is that when you think about money in Luke and, and what God calls people to, there's no set formula, Right? The rich young ruler, just in the previous chapter, Jesus asked him to give everything up because he knew that was the hard issue. Jesus actually doesn't ask Zacchaeus to do anything. Instead, I think what Zacchaeus models is what we just read from 2 Corinthians 12. He is a cheerful giver. He just gives out of his heart. He sees God and he gives. And God, guys, that's what God wants from us, a cheerful giving. There's no law of a certain amount you have to give. In fact, if you're very, very wealthy, maybe 10, 20, 30% of your income is actually not really that painful even. And there's some of you here that are really struggling and whatever you can give is okay. (laughs) Really, there is no set law. What God sees and cares about is the heart. He just wants a heart that gives out of thanksgiving to God. That's all he cares about. He doesn't need anything from us. But what we see in Zacchaeus is a guy who does sacrifice, but it's coming out of this seeing who Jesus is, recognizing who he is, and just gives of himself freely and wholeheartedly. And notice also the shock of this story. The shock in verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son or child of Abraham. When we tell the story in Sunday school, I'm not sure what the shock is. It seems like the shock is more just that a short person in a tree gets to be the house guest, I guess. I'm not quite sure what the, what the point of the children's story is usually. But the real shock is this, that this most notorious sinner, this guy who is a total bad guy, is now declared to not only have his, his sins forgiven, but more corporately, more personally even for us, Jesus is saying, this man is part of the kingdom of God. He's part of the community of God's people. That person who was a total sellout to the rest of us, 
he actually is part of the lineage of Abraham. He's part of the line of God's very people. Why? Because the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In fact, if you think back, this idea of being a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham, occurred way back at the beginning of the gospel as well. Do you remember what happens right at the beginning, before Jesus' ministry even starts? John the Baptist is there at the Jordan preaching, and he does this very seeker-sensitive thing. When a bunch of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to him, he calls out to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come? That's not something we usually do for our call to worship. You brood of vipers, who warned you to come? But he knows the hearts of these religious leaders who are quite opposed to John and Jesus. So he says, you brood of vipers, who invited you to come? And then look at verse 8 of chapter 3, right at the beginning of the gospel. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. In other words, don't claim that just because you have a religious or genetic heritage that somehow that makes one have a claim on God. He's saying, God looks and sees at the heart and look at this beautiful idea that God can actually get children for himself out of dead stones. Fast forward to chapter 19 on the cusp of his last week of life. And we have this dead, wicked, greedy, cut apart person, a stone that now has been made a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. Not because he's given his money away or something, but because he has seen who Jesus is and he's repented. In fact, if you go on to what John the Baptist says, verse 9, the axe is ready at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown to the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asks. And John gives some really practical things about what it looks like to follow Jesus. Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. And then look at this, verse 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. And teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to. And here we have, at the end of Jesus' ministry, public ministry, an incarnate example of this beautiful message that God can raise up for himself, children for Abraham, his own community, people of God, and calling us to give freely of ourselves. So it's a short, simple story, just 10 verses in Luke 19. We're familiar to it as a kid's story. But what, I mean, what does this mean for you and me today, really? Well, there are a lot of things we could say that would be really helpful. For example, we could explore the idea that the people of God are not always who, th- who we think they are. That's one of the themes that comes out in this story, I think, that Zacchaeus looks like a bad guy, and he is, but he turns out to be part of the people of God. And the Pharisees look like good guys, but they turn out to be the grumblers against God. We could talk about, if we think about Zacchaeus, we could remember that everybody has a backstory and everybody has woundedness and everybody's fighting a battle. I mean, when you and I look at Zacchaeus, we probably just think bad guy, but he was a real person as well. 
who had needs and wounds. And that's how Jesus sees him. We could talk about that. We could talk about the fact that the call of discipleship is different for each person. God doesn't call us to the same thing. And this is a common problem, especially when you're very zealous as a young Christian, is that what you think God, what God may be calling you to may not be what God calling, God's calling somebody else to. And that's part of maturity is sort of recognizing that, that God's call on discipleship is different for different people. But instead today, I just want to apply this text to our lives by thinking about one beautiful and key truth about God and who God is for us in Christ and one key and beautiful truth about Zacchaeus that we learn about ourselves. First, what do we learn about God in Christ? Well, simply and wonderfully, God is seeking us. God is seeking you and me. You see, in this story, it appears at first that it's a story about Zacchaeus seeking Jesus, and it, and it kind of is, and that he was intrigued because he'd heard things. But if you notice how this story works out, Zacchaeus never cries out to Jesus. He doesn't try to say, hey, Yeshua, I'm up here, something. Jesus is completely in charge of this. He stops, chooses him, calls him out by name, invites him into his house, and all that Zacchaeus does is just opens himself with joy. But God is at work in calling and inviting Jesus or inviting Zacchaeus into himself. Friends, what we see here is what we see in the rest of the New Testament as well. This is how God operates. This is how Jesus operates. He is seeking. He is searching. He is reaching out. He is calling us that he might lift us up and transform us. It's not just Zacchaeus' story, the reason the story is here is that it models who Jesus is and how he operates, how the triune God himself operates, seeking and rescuing. In fact, that's how the story ends, isn't it? In 1910, Jesus is the son of man who has come to seek and save the lost. I'm sure that Zacchaeus wondered if it were possible for him ever in those dark moments of honesty, is it possible for him to be part of God's community? In fact, I'm sure that he was sure that it was impossible. That he had gone too far. He had robbed people. He was hated by everybody. He was greedy. He was controlled by his wealth. When he looked inside, he saw that and there was no way to get escape from that. Yet here it really happened. Even in the midst of his utter failure, his brokenness and his woundedness, when he thought there was no way, Jesus sought him out and rescued him. That's good news. I trust for many here today, you are aware that that's happened in your life at some point. And in that, I want to encourage you, that's how God is. That's who he is. And that's what he's still doing in your life. He is seeking and wooing. Maybe you feel hardened. Maybe you feel numb. Maybe when you look inside, you're a Christian, but you look inside and you feel a lot of brokenness and inability. It's not up to you. He is seeking you and calling you and seeking you out to rescue you. The Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost, not the ones who have it all together. Or maybe today... You've been wondering, maybe you're not a Christian or you don't know what to think of this. You've been coming for a while, but you wonder whether 
you really are redeemable. I mean, if you really knew the things I'd done, you might be saying to yourself, or you really knew what's really in my heart, how wicked it is, how bad it is, how much broken, how messed up everything is. There's no way to fix this. Maybe that's where you are today. Friends, that's Zacchaeus. He's not just a wee little man climbing up in a sycamore tree. He is a broken, jacked up, screwed up, total moral and public failure. And yet he is transformed, transformed by meeting Jesus. That could be you. So we learn about God in Christ that he is seeking and saving, but we also learn something about ourselves from Zacchaeus. And that is that he is one who manifests the only thing we can really do. And that is respond with a childlike faith. That's the beauty of Zacchaeus here, that he responds as a child of Abraham. And what I mean is this, that whole tree climbing thing, that was weird, right? No grown man climbs up in a tree. That is a very shameful thing to do. Even today, it would be weird. If you walked outside and somebody's, Pastor Josh or Lyle's been, hey, Spackle's going great, and he's sitting up there in a tree, we'd all think, I'm not sure what's happening here. But in first century, I hope that's not happening. That'll be really weird if we go out there and that happens. But in the first century world, was, there was a lot more sense of shame and dignity and honor. And this was very odd. What I think it shows is that Zacchaeus doesn't care. He, he is beyond all the show and the pretense of society. He realizes, like a child, his desperate need. And he is seeking Jesus with this childlike faith. And when he then is in this dinner house, this dinner party in his own house, and he hears Jesus talking, he's realizing who he is. If I were him, I think I would have been just slinking back. I'll get some more biscuits and slinking back and sort of not come back into the rest of the dinner party because I'd feel so much shame and guilt about it all. But instead, with childlike openness, doesn't try to cover his shame. He just stands up in the middle of the feast and says, I'm going to give away half I've got. And if I've wronged anybody, I'm going to pay him back. I mean, it was a very public thing. This is the kind of wholeheartedness. He's imperfect, but he's wholehearted and he's honest. The childlike kind of faith. It, he doesn't even initiate this. This is God's initiative, but he responds. And the only thing we can do is just give ourselves with openness. In fact, remember then that 1817, right before this, Jesus is taught, Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I think not only does Zacchaeus manifest what it means to be a son of Abraham raised up from a stone, he also incarnates what it means to be childlike in responding to the grace of God. Because you see, unfortunately, as we grow older, we often, again, rightly, lose some childishness, but unfortunately, we often lose this childlike trust in God and this, this faith and this openness to others and openness to God. And that happens because life is really hard. We do stupid things, mean and evil things are done to us and our hearts get hardened and we lose this childlike faith. And, and one of the ways I think that's the opposite of this childlike faith is a, is a, is a skepticism and a kind of a cynicism as a way of showing up in the world And, you know, we live in a very cynical age. And if I can just address the teenagers here and the the tweens, I want to say to you particularly, 
beware of being a skeptic and cynic. And I've got a bunch of these in my home. I'm not saying they're skeptics and cynics. I've got a bunch of teenagers, I mean. So I'm, I'm aware of this tendency. Because you see, what's happening for a tween and a teenager is that there's something very important happening for them neurologically and psychologically. They are becoming self-aware for the first time, as opposed to like when they're six or seven or eight. And when you 12, 13, 14, and you're becoming very self-aware. And when you become self-aware, the number one thing that you don't, you realize is that I don't want to be shamed or embarrassed. Right? And a lot of us still feel that. I mean, that's true for all of us. But especially at that age and parents, if you can remember that about your children, that that's basically what's motivating a lot of what's going on and a lot of hormones too. Right? But they're becoming self-aware. And so the one, the big motivation is I don't want to be shamed or embarrassed by anybody or anything. And one way to protect ourselves from that potential of being shamed and embarrassed is to show up as a skeptic. To show up as a cynic. Nothing matters. I hate that. I hate everything. Meh. Friends, that's, and teenagers all address you, that's an understandable way of showing up to protect yourself. But you're not that far away from that childlike openness. Don't lose that. You want to not be childish, but don't become a skeptic and lose that open-heartedness to your parents and to others. What about husbands and wives, those of you who are married here? Marriage is so, can, can be so difficult, so many wounds, so much. You really know the other person in a way that nobody else does, and you see they're not maybe quite as spectacular as everybody else thinks they are. And it's easy out of that hurt and woundedness to begin to be jaded and cynical and skeptical about whether your spouse is really ever going to change or ever really going to be that good of a partner person. Friends, that's not how Jesus viewed Zacchaeus. He didn't show up with a jaded, cynical, skeptical view. Jesus himself was like a child in leading us to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he looks upon Zacchaeus believing and hoping that he can be transformed. And, and what about you? Are you stuck in a place in your marriage where you've just kind of given up because you just think there's no way this is ever going to change? And of course, if we're focusing on changing our spouse, I guarantee you that's not going to work. You do have to get beyond that. But to trust the Lord with a childlike faith that God is at work and can and does change people. He really does. Single people here, whether you're divorced or separated or never married, you may not be living the life you thought you were going to. I don't know. Not tritely, but with compassion, I say to you, look to your father with a childlike faith. Renew today. Trust that he's in control. Or, or maybe today you're in that pre-Jesus Zacchaeus stage of you've been pretty successful and you have things together, but deep and dark moments, your soul is screaming that something's wrong. Cynicism and skepticism can be a way to kind of try to put a plug on that scream, but it won't really satisfy. Instead, I would encourage you, open your heart in childlike faith. Be like Zacchaeus. Who cares about what it might cost you? But instead, open your heart to seek Jesus. So friends, here we have a children's story, 
Zacchaeus, the wee little man in his sycamore tree, but it turns out to be much more profound and personal and powerful than just a kid's story. It's a picture of God who's a seeking, saving one. And it's a picture of a response of just openness to the Lord in a childlike way. And I started by mentioning Susan Pevensey, and I hope you can see the connection now, that she's one who has lost this childlike faith by any number of things that can happen, that can, any of us, that can happen to you. But that's not the end of the Narnia story either. It's not the end of Susan's story. And as you may know, at the end of the Narnia story, when, when Aslan is returning and when all the people are gathering together and they're on the cusp of the new creation, beholding all of its glory. And it says that, the unicorn alone summed it up well. He pawed his hoof into the ground and said, come further up, come further in. These beautiful words that are inviting us in the same way that Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, come, I'm coming into your house. Come, let me dine with you. Open your home and open your heart to me and come and feast on this grace, this kindness, because I am seeking you and I can find you and I can rescue you from all your situations, all your mess. You, I am what you long for, Jesus is saying, come further up and come further into this feast. And as we end our service, we're reminded by these symbols that we are looking for the wedding supper, the marriage supper of the lamb, the one worthy who was slain, who on the night that he was betrayed, he gave his body to be broken. He broke bread with his, his friends and said, this represents what I'm about to do. Looking forward to the time where I'll restore all things. And he poured out his own blood on the cross that we represent with the fruit of the vine. And so we end our service every week reminding ourselves that we are partaking in something longing. We're partaking in a feast now, longing to be brought into the fullness of what God has for us. And so if you're a Christian today, um, this is a great opportunity. Maybe take a few moments of silence and ask the Lord to work in your heart in a deeper way today and open you up. And then come and by faith, just take of these elements. You dip the bread into either the wine, which is marked with its wine or grape juice and and do this as an act of faith, of remembrance, and looking forward to the feast. If you're not a Christian today, maybe God has spoken to you. I'd love to speak to you. Anybody up there on the platform would be happy to talk to you afterwards and talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian today, again, we're thrilled you're here. Don't partake of this. This is not a magic ritual. This is an act of faith. And so there's no shame in just staying in your seat today. So let me pray for us that God would continue to work and invite us into his feast. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.